0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. As promised, tonight we are going to finish the book of Ezekiel, but I point out that I am teaching tonight under duress because last night at the end of men's meeting, Micah said, I'm anxious to hear what you're going to say tomorrow night to see how you're going to handle one particular thing. Now, he didn't tell me what the thing is, <laughs> but he's just anxious to hear me handle one particular thing. So I'm just going to do my best, and if we get to the end of the night and Micah still has questions, we'll know that I didn't cover that thing. I think it's verse 30 of the last chapter. It says 4,500 cubits, and that's the big thing. <laughs> How do you handle that? One of the most enduring images that you see throughout the Bible is the idea of living water. Water is a a symbol of life. In John 7, John takes the time to interpret Jesus' words about living water as being a direct reference to the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, come unto me if you're thirsty, he says, he that believes on me, out of his belly will come rivers of living water. Well, that imagery of living water has much more effect on people who are living in a desert like the Middle East, than it does for us. When we think water, we just go open a tap somewhere and get water. But in the Middle East, especially 2,000 years ago, there were a couple of things that you had to concentrate on every single day. Job one was find food. Job one every day was get something to eat. But then the search is on for water, drinkable water. The difference between living water and just normal water is that stagnant water has a tendency to collect bacteria and bugs, and it'll make you sick if you drink it. But flowing water, rivers, streams of water, is referred to as living water, and it provides life. It's a source of life, not only human life, but if there's streams or rivers, then you can grow, like in Egypt, in the Fertile Crescent You can grow plant life and trees and everything because there's water. It's a necessity. It's a necessity. No water, no life. And so water is a very, very significant emblem all the way through the Bible. And we're going to run into it again here tonight because from the temple that has been described through the last several chapters, from the temple there is a stream that flows out from the temple, out into the city, beyond the city walls, and then finally becomes a raging river. And this stream goes out two different directions. It goes out to the west and heads toward the Mediterranean, but it also goes east. And when it goes east, it does something truly miraculous. It goes east to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea lives, springs to life because finally living water has come to it. Do you know why the Dead Sea is referred to as the Dead Sea? It's not just because it's very salty, but it has no streams outward. It has no tributaries outward. All the water that reaches the Dead Sea flows into the Dead Sea and then just sits there, stagnates, becomes salty. Nothing can live in it. But once the streams from the altar of God, from the temple of God, make their way to the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is going to come to life. So that's pretty amazing. So these are the waters of life. And so this is what Ezekiel sees. Now, it's really, really common for folks because of John 7. And because of John interpreting Jesus' words in a spiritual fashion, it's typical for people to read the first part of chapter 47 of Ezekiel and attempt to spiritualize it. Well, there's water, and Ezekiel sees water. So what Ezekiel is really seeing is an abundance of life and an outflowing of the word from the temple or something like that. I I just think that Ezekiel is describing exactly what he saw very much like he saw the Valley of Dry Bones. And he said, look, it's a valley. There's dry bones. That's what I see. So the same thing here. I think we can do a little bit of damage by over-interpreting this living water. But what he saw was that the water was going to come from the temple and then everyone, everything, plant life, people are going to be nourished by it. And there are going to be fishermen, so that means there's going to be fish. I was there... going to do a bait shop over there. You were going to open a bait shop over there. <laughs> really? Is that where you went? Yeah. You were going to open a bait shop over there. <laughs> well, it's a good plan. So let's start reading. Chapter 47 of Ezekiel, starting at verse 1. Then he, the angelic man that had been showing Ezekiel around, brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faces east, and the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, and from the south of the altar." And he brought me by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate, by the way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. So pay attention to the fact that originally this is just a stream. It's just a trickle. It's just a bit of water, but it's going to become a flowing river. So when the man went outside toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. And again, he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. And again, he measured another thousand, and he led me through the water, water reaching the loins." And again, he measured a thousand. And it was a river that I could not ford. It means I could not cross it, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in. A river that could not be crossed or forded. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me back to the bank of the river. So Ezekiel is led from the kitchens. From the temple's outer court, that's where we saw last week in chapter 46, to the entrance of the temple proper, and then he sees the water that's coming from the threshold of the temple toward the east. And as he's being led... Roughly 1,750 feet, that's what 1,000 cubits pretty much measures out to. So every 1,750 feet, he sees it's getting deeper and deeper, from ankle deep to knee deep, and then finally to his waist, and then finally to a river that he can't even cross Somebody look up Zechariah 14.8, if you would, for just a moment, because this isn't the only place that this river is actually referred to. And somebody else, look up Joel 3.18, if you would, because Joel mentions this river before Ezekiel's time, and then Zechariah speaks of it when he's talking about Israel returning from the Babylonian captivity. So this stream that becomes a river... Play such an important role that it's mentioned by three different prophets because water is so important. So who's got uh, Zechariah 14.8? You got that, Tom? Yeah, I got that. Okay, so what does that say? On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Then who's got Joel 3.18. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, all the brooks of Judah will be flooded with water, a fountain shall flow flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacia. So, this idea of water flowing out from the temple is a really important concept. Now, you get to the book of Revelation... And you get to the description of New Jerusalem coming, you get the same imagery. You get that same idea of water, living water flowing, and all the plant life being nourished, and all the trees bearing their fruit because of the. Yeah, bringing life to the whole area around Jerusalem and around New Jerusalem because God recognizes and understands the necessity of water for all living things. So, starting at verse 7, we read, Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. So, it's not just humans, but vegetation that's growing as a result of all this water. Then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. Then they go toward the sea, that would be the Mediterranean Being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. Okay, the Mediterranean is full of salt, but it's going to become fresh water as a result of the apparently superior water that's going to be flowing out of the temple of God. Verse 9 says, And it will come about that every living creature which swarms every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish for these waters go there and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. So that's an indication that it's just life, life, life. As a result of the flowing water that's supplied out of the temple of God, everything that comes near the water is going to live. Verse 10 says, and it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from engedi to enaglaime there will be a place for a spreading of nets their fish will be according to their kinds like the fish of the great sea very many but its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh they will be left for salt now I find that really interesting because up until that moment, you could almost say, well, clearly he's describing the life-giving power of God and the flowing of God's spirit. And so he is seeing a symbolic flowing of water coming out of the temple, bringing life. And so clearly that's a symbolic thing. But look at the detail here. If we're just talking about a non-physical, very spiritual flowing of some kind of living water, then what's the whole point of saying that there's going to be swamps and marshes that will not become fresh because they're going to be left for salt? Well, that's all really, really physical. That's very literal. That's very genuine. So if you're going to read the text... In its context, you end up having to say Ezekiel is describing literal water coming from the literal temple that goes outside the literal walls that serves literal fish and literal trees. And literal fishermen are going to take literal nets and go fishing because there's going to be an abundance of fish. But then the swamps, some of the creeks aren't going to become fresh. They're going to be left for salt because salt is also a necessity. And God knows that. So God's got it all planned out. Verse 12. And by the river on its bank, on the one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. And their fruit will be for food and their leaves will be for healing. Okay, so I have to conclude that this is very genuine trees, very genuine food. It's pointless to say that this is all spiritualized in some way and then talk about fruit that's good for food and leaves that are good for healing. How do you spiritualize those things? Instead, I argue that Ezekiel saw what he saw, he described what he saw, and it was all meant to be understood in a very, very literal fashion. So that's what I expect, is that there is going to be a temple from God and that living water is going to flow from it and the surrounding region is going to be watered by it And the salty water is going to become fresh water, and trees, and fish, and human beings, lots of life, yes. So that gives me 12 verses in before I can say to you, okay, this is the point at which it all gets really detailed, and just laying out the divisions of the land. Now, does everybody still have one of these from last week? If you don't have one of these, you're going to have one. The advantage to that map, that visual aid, is that it's going to show you visually what Ezekiel is about to describe, the division of the land. And the land is divided up among the 12 tribes. And the city of Jerusalem, where it's going to be, and that the city of Jerusalem is going to have 12 gates, Three on each side, very similar to what we see in Revelation 21 and the new Jerusalem, where in the new Jerusalem, there are gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the positioning of the tribes isn't left up to the Israelites. God, who is very specific, is going to say exactly where the land divisions go and exactly who gets each portion of land, just like your map shows, And then God is going to say that the gates themselves that enter Jerusalem have to have particular names over them, the particular names of the tribes. And if you're Naphtali, you don't get to choose which side you're on. God's going to tell you which side has the gate for Naphtali and which one has the gate for Judah and which one has the gate for Levi. Because God is very, very specific. So starting at verse 13... Thus says the Lord God, this shall be the boundary by which you divide the land for an inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph will have two portions. Okay, why is that? Do you remember your history? Why does Joseph get two portions? See, each one of his sons was adopted by... Ephraim and Manasseh, who are the two sons of Joseph, each get a portion of the land. Why does that still equal 12? Because the Levites don't get a portion of the land. They have to live and exist in the portion of land that is dedicated to the Lord. So Ephraim and Manasseh each get a part of the land. They're not just subsumed under the title of Joseph. So the sons of Joseph each get a portion. And you shall divide it for an inheritance, each one equally with the other. For I swore to give it to your forefathers, and this land shall fall to you as an inheritance. And this shall be the boundary of the land. On the north side, from the great sea by the way of Hethlon to the entrance of Zedad. Anybody know where that is? Is that doing anything for anybody? See, a lot of these borders and cities that are going to be named throughout the next two chapters have been lost to antiquity. We kind of guess that we know where these things are. We kind of guess even the map you've got is a really good estimate of the way the different tribes are going to be lined up north to south. But the exact boundary lines, we don't know anymore. So Hamath and Barathah and Sibraim, which is between the borders of Damascus and the border of Hamath, Hazar-Hadakon, which is by the border of Haran, and the boundary shall extend to the sea of Hazaranan at the border of Damascus, and on the north toward the north to the border of Hamath. This is the north side. Okay, I'm going to save myself the trouble of naming all these cities, and I'm going to read you a summation of what's being said here. God had promised Abraham. You can go all the way back to Genesis 13 and read about it. God promised Abraham that he and his descendants were going to own the land of Palestine. And that promise has never been rescinded. There are some folks who try to say, well... Israel didn't keep their part of the law, they didn't keep their part of the covenant, and therefore God has driven them out of the land because they don't get their land inheritance. But what you see consistently throughout the Old Testament is the promise that God is going to give them that land because every time that he holds them guilty for the way they have rebelled, he always follows it up with his promise of restoration for them. We've seen it time and time again through all the prophets that we've read. So God promised them a particular land, and if God doesn't actually give them that land, then God has lied, God has fibbed, God has led them on. There is a philosophy out there that says that the promises now that have come to the church and our inheritance of heaven somehow now supplants all the land promises, that God used the land in the Old Testament to symbolize the heavenly destiny in the New Testament. In fact, I heard a fellow, I won't tell you his name, but he said many years ago that his example of how it works was if he promised his son that when he turned 18 he would buy him a Volkswagen, If then, when his son turned 18, he didn't actually buy him a Volkswagen, instead he bought him a Corvette, that he had still technically kept his promise, even though he changed the terms of the promise. So I called him on it one day, and I said to him, no, that's not really your example. That's not really what you believe. If you were going to create an analogy for what you actually believe... Then you would promise your son a Volkswagen on his 18th birthday, but when he turns 18, you would give a Corvette to the kid down the street, and then try to convince your son that you kept your promise to him because somebody else got a better thing than what was promised. You understand the the analogy? God has promised the land to Israel, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, he has to give that land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants. So when God inaugurates his new covenant, Jeremiah 31, recited in Hebrews 8, when he finally inaugurates the new covenant with Israel, then part of that I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people relationship is going to be that God is going to keep every promise that he's ever made to them, despite the fact that they didn't keep the law and they didn't keep the covenant. And you should be, I know I emphasize this every time I bring this up, but it's worth emphasizing, you should be really, really happy that God is nevertheless going to keep his promises, despite Israel's rebellion against them, or else none of you could have any hope, because you're not about to convince me that you have lived your whole life in constant faithfulness toward God. You've broken promises. You've broken covenant with God. There's nobody good enough that God would say, well, you deserve everything I'm going to give you. Instead, everything that God is doing is a matter of grace. And it's demonstrated in the Old (coughs) Testament by God's faithfulness to Israel despite Israel, and it's demonstrated in the New Testament in God's faithfulness to the church despite the church, and God's faithfulness to Josiah despite Josiah. You understand it? So if you take away Israel's land, that very secure, definite covenant promise, if you take that away from them, or say that it's now fulfilled in some other spiritualized way, well, then you're saying that God can make promises, even promises to you, and then just not do it. He can just decide to do something else and say, well, there, I, I kept the promise to you in the way I took care of Micah. Sorry, Josiah, but I took care of Micah, so that's, that's good. Seems fair. That seems fair? Yeah, okay, well, good enough. Did I see a hand? Yes. Yeah. Since, since um, Israel is, a, is the wife of God, and the church is the bride of Christ, just like you making a promise to his wife and giving it to his son's wife. Of Makes no sense, does it? Yeah, it doesn't make yeah. Any sense. Yeah. And yet that is a very, very popular theology. Not stated the way you just stated it, but that's essentially what they're saying when they say God made promises to Israel. But those were just a type and a shadow for what God's going to do in the church. And he's not going to give Israel the land. He's going to give the church heaven. And that's much, much better than just a piece of dirt in the Middle East. So therefore, God kept his promise to Israel. But My question is always, how is that a promise to Israel kept? That's a promise to the church and Gentiles, and, but it's not to Israel. So. So God is very specifically going to divide the land here. It's really important that God does not forget that the land of Palestine in its totality belongs to Israel. So to prepare the people for this new occupation of the land, God defined the boundaries of the country. He said, because I swore with an uplifted hand... Which is a gesture that kings make when they're taking an oath. He said, I swore with an uplifted hand to give this to your forefathers, to give them this land as an inheritance. So Israel's borders during the millennium are going to be similar to those that were promised to Israel all the way back at Moses. Okay, so the northern boundary of the land is going to run east from the Great Sea, the Mediterranean starting somewhere north of Tyre and Sidon, more precisely Mount Hor. The boundary line will go by Hethlon Road past Hamath to Zidad. In other words, it's like it's written on that map. If you look at the visual aid, you'll get the idea of what the northern border of the land is going to be. Now, in the notes here, in one of the commentaries I read, it says the location of Hethlon is unknown, but many associate it with the modern city of Hatala, northeast of Tripoli, in modern Lebanon. So that's how high the northern border is going to be. Zedad should probably be identified with the town of Zedad, which is about 25 miles north of Damascus. The locations of the town Biratha and Sibraim are not known, but they're said to lie on the border between Damascus and Hamath, so we have some idea where those are as well. The eastern border is going to extend between Haran to Damascus. The edge of Israel's territory will arch back from Hazar-Anan along the southern border of Syria until it reaches the Jordan River south of the Sea of Galilee. From there, it's going to go along the Jordan River between Gilead to the land of Israel, to the Eastern Sea, and as far as Tamar. The east border will be the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. Gilead and Transjordan area are to the east of the Jordan, and those aren't going to be included in Israel's future inheritance. So the exact location of Tamar to which the eastern boundary will continue is kind of uncertain, but it may be just south of the Dead Sea. The southern border of Israel's millennial kingdom is going to extend from Tamar as far as the waters of the Meribah, Kadesh, then along the Wadi of Egypt to the Great Sea. So, since the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, were at the Kadesh Barnea, the southern border will stretch southward from Tamar to the Kadesh Barnea. And from there, it will go to the Wadi of Egypt. And this is probably the Wadi el-Arish, not the Nile River. The western border of the promised land is going to be, can you guess? The western border of the land of Israel. The western border is going to be what? What's that western border (laughs) going to be? The sea. There's water there. So that's going to be the western border. You're not going to go any further west than that. Pardon me? Not Not Crete. Crete's on the other side of the Mediterranean, but yeah, once you get to water, stop there. Then, starting at verse 21, the land's going to be distributed according to the tribes of Israel. This is like a prelude to the division of the land that you're going to see in chapter 48, but Ezekiel includes regulations for allotting the land to resident aliens who will want to be associated with Israel being considered native-born Israelites there to be allotted an inheritance among the tribe of Israel. So let's start reading at verse 21. So you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. And it will come about that you shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves and among the aliens who stay in your midst, who bring forth sons in your midst. And they shall be to you as the native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it will come about that in the tribe with which the alien stays, there you shall give him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. And that takes us to chapter 48, which is the last chapter in the book of Ezekiel. These are the names of the tribes from the northern extremity beside the way of Hethlon and Libohamath. As far as the Hazarean and the border of Damascus toward the north beside the Hamath running to the east and the west, Dan, one portion. Okay, I'm not going to read all this because that description is just like every other description. Twelve descriptions of places you don't know that might be lost to antiquity. Just look at your maps, look at the visual aids, and you'll have a pretty good idea of it. Let me summarize it for you. The central band of land is allotted to the prince. You see that right in the middle of your map? You see that in your visual aid? The priests and the Levites are going to live there. That central portion is also going to include the city of Jerusalem and all its suburbs. This city is going to be laid out as a square that's 7,875 feet on each side. It's going to cover approximately 2.2 square miles. Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by a band of land 437 and a half feet wide, which will serve as pasture land for the flocks and the herds belonging to the people of the city. On either side of the city proper, there are going to be two portions of land that are 3.3 miles long and 1.65 miles wide. This farmland is going to be cultivated to supply food for the workers that are in the city. Now, in dividing the whole rest of the land, God's going to give seven tribes the northern part of the land, above where Jerusalem and the Lord's land is. Up there, if you travel north from Jerusalem, you're going to find the land that belongs to Dan and to Asher, to Naphtali, to Manasseh, to Ephraim, to Reuben, and to Judah. The lower part of the land will be allotted to the five other tribes proceeding south These are going to be Benjamin, then Simeon, then Issachar, then Zebulun, and finally Gad. The location of all 12 tribes is actually different there than it is when they originally occupied the land under Joshua. But now God lays out the new standard. I just summarized most of chapter 48 for you. I hope you appreciate the amount of time that I saved you. And the amount of cities that I would mispronounce. I hope that the occupants of those cities are happy that I did that. There's going to be a portion for the prince starting at verse 21. The remainder shall be for the prince on the one side and on the other side of the holy allotment and of the property of the city. That's why I took the time to describe the prince's land and the land that belongs to the Lord so that you can think north of there and south of there. And then there's going to be gates to the city, starting at verse 30, and these are the exits of the city on the north side, 4,500 cubits by measurement, shall be the gates of the city, named for the tribes of Israel, three gates toward the north, the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi. Okay, so why exactly those three to the north? Well, those seem to be the three most prominent of the tribes. Reuben's the firstborn. Judah is the one through whom Christ came. So his father gave him the blessing that through him Shiloh would come and that the law giving and the scepter would not depart until Shiloh comes whose right it is to rule. So Reuben, the firstborn, Judah, and then Levi, the Levites, were the tribe that God took to himself. Those three tribes are representative of the gates in the north. And on the east side, 4,500 cubits, there shall be three gates. And the gate of Joseph will be one, and the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. Now, it would be real easy to just read past that and kind of not recognize the commonality that those three tribes have. But on the east side of Jerusalem, these gates are named for Joseph, Benjamin, and Dad because the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh are combined into one, the tribe of Joseph. Joseph and Benjamin are the two sons of Rachel. And Dan was the first son of Rachel's servant, Bilhah. So those are the three children that came through Rachel's lineage. Then if you start at verse 33, and on the south side, 4,500 cubits by measurement shall be three gates. The gate of Simeon, one, and the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. So these are the gates on the west side. Gad, Asher, Naphtali are on the west side. But on the south, it's going to be Simeon and Issachar and Zebulun. These three, those three, Simeon and Issachar and Zebulun, were the three that were born to Leah. Since each of those tribes was relocated In the southern portion of the land, their gates also face that direction. So God, who knows everybody's lineage and everybody's genealogy and how each of those tribes came to be, actually starts dividing them up according to their mothers, which is just interesting. Mm -hmm. So then, as I said, the gate on the west side is going to be Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. These three tribes descended from sons of Jacob's concubines, So Gad and Asher were born to Zilpah. You can read about that in Genesis 30. And then Naphtali is born to Bilhah. And so according to their mothers, that's how the gates are divided. Now you might at this point very well ask, why? Why would God do that? They all had a common father, but they all had different mothers. Why would God set up the millennium city in such a way that the gates would be divided according to their mothers. And the answer is, I don't have the foggiest. I have no idea why that would be the case except that it is the case. God decided it, that he would divide the gates according to the tribes, according to their mothers. Because God knew you would be teaching this just prior to mothers. That's it. That's precisely it. Providentially, God knew that I'd be teaching this just before Mother's Day. And so he wrote that in there so that, I, really? Is that yeah. word? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Why not? It might, be a <laughs> it might be a stretch. And that, believe it or not, takes us to the very last verse in the book of Ezekiel. Verse 35. This city shall be 18,000 cubits round about. And the name of the city from that day shall be The Lord Is There. Now that's really, really interesting. When you think about the sweeping overview of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel starts with images of Israel's conquering, of Israel being taken into the Babylonian captivity, and then Jerusalem falling. And then he sees images of God leaving his temple god abandoning his temple and then there's all this bad stuff that happens to israel during that time but the book doesn't end before god promises not only to restore israel and to restore them very specifically back to their land and exactly what the land divisions are going to be and exactly what his worship is going to be like and exactly how his temple is going to be built and how his altars are going to be built and what the worship is going to be like on a daily basis God doesn't leave anything to chance but then the very last thing is the promise that God kept saying over and over through all the prophets to Israel he kept saying to them you will be my people I will be your God when they are all gathered finally again in their land God names it specifically I'm going to be there Mm. the name of the city from that day will be the Lord is there Mm. so if the Gentile nations want to know where's God he's there the Lord is there where among his people israel because those are the people he first chose he first elected he first revealed himself to and then he revealed how his worship was going to be done and then he grew them into a mighty nation in egypt and And then took them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land flowing with milk and honey and made them an everlasting covenant and made them promises and a new covenant. And he kept saying over and over and over again, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And so ultimately you would expect that once the millennium is there, that God would say the name of the city is going to be, I'm there. That's where God is. The Lord is in Jerusalem. And that's the final promise of the book of Ezekiel which is a wonderful way to finish the promise two people, think about it for just a moment he's prophesying all this stuff while they are in the Babylonian captivity they're slaves, they're workers they're servants, the city has fallen, Jerusalem, the walls have been destroyed, the temple is destroyed the worship of God is over they had to feel very very abandoned where is God in all this And God takes Ezekiel, starts him with a valley of dry bones, and ends up saying, this is the whole house of Israel, who I will raise up on the last day. And then he says, take two sticks and write on them, one for the northern tribe, one for the southern tribe, one for Israel, one for Judah. Put them in your hand. I'm going to make them a united country again and then the promise of the davidic covenant is fulfilled ezekiel sees that that david their prince is going to rule over them again they're going to have one king they're going to have one prince over all of them and then god promises them the land the land the land over and over again in great exacting detail and the establishment of the temple and the establishment of the worship and then god finally says despite the fact that you feel abandoned despite the fact that you're out of your country, despite the fact that the temple has been destroyed, despite all of that, the end for you is, I'll be in your midst. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. So, I guess after all that, we kind of have to ask the question, does God mean that? Yes. Is that what God intends to do? Sounds yes. good to me. Sounds good to me. Because... If you end up spiritualizing that, then you end up saying, Ezekiel's wrong. Ezekiel just doesn't know what he's talking about. I read an article just today, people debating back and forth, and then it and this was on Facebook. I know better than to go on Facebook. I know better. <laughs> but somebody brought up the are the sacrifices in Ezekiel. Are those literal? Are they actual sacrifices? And of course, they went to the book of Hebrews and argued how you know those things are just a shadow, so it can't be. And then somebody finally piped up and asked the very thing I was thinking, which was, so then is Ezekiel wrong? Because uh-huh. that's a good question if you're going to end up saying, no, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean literal land and literal sacrifice and literal temple, and a literal regathering of the people. It doesn't mean that. It means something else. Well, then tell me what it means. Prove it from the text because the text is very, very literal. And the culmination of the text is God is there. The Lord is there in the city of Jerusalem. How do you spiritualize that? That all has to be very, very literal or the book of Ezekiel makes no sense. Well, you know what? I had this little boy when fourth grade came up to me and he said, You know, I don't much think I want to go to heaven. And I wish I'd known to tell him then that heaven will be like your home on the earth. Well, I would go a little bit further than you and say the heaven is not our permanent home. Our permanent home is New Jerusalem and New well, Jerusalem is on the new heavens I'm and I'm new earth. About. So, Yeah. Yes, yeah, sir, you had your hand up. Guess what I'm thinking. you probably going to guess. I'm going to tell you. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about the 12 apostles, because Christ said that they were going to rule, I believe I'm, I'm correct, that they were going to rule the 12 tribes. Yeah, you're going to judge the 12 tribes. Some yeah? of the things that we just read, of course, didn't mention that, but how do they tie into this? How? Well, I think it all says the same thing which is there's going to be a regathering of Israel, all 12 tribes. You see that promise all the way through the Old Testament. Jesus gets on the planet and doesn't change it. In fact, he is the guarantee that it's going to happen. Then he says to his 12 apostles, you're going to judge the 12 tribes, which means the 12 tribes have to exist again. And then you get to the book of Revelation and you read 144,000, 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So God clearly knows how to find them. And here, long as we're talking about it, turn to Revelation 21. And, and let's see one more quick connection here. Are they going to be over them or just judging them? I'm kind of confused about that. Oh, okay. When I say judging them, what he's talking about is just like the book of Judges. If you go back and look in the book of Judges, before Israel had kings, God assigned judges. And what they did was lead the people, keep the people responsible to the law of God to determine between two people if they had a dispute, what was right, what was fair. So it has nothing to do with judging their eternal state. It has to do with being like a civil leader, the same way that we have judges. You run a stop sign, you got to go see the judge. you know. So it's the same thing. They're going to judge the 12 tribes. Jesus will rule... Israel will have a prince, David, and then there's going to be that trickle-down of responsibility, and apparently the next trickle-down will be every tribe will have a judge who used to be an apostle. But in order for there to be a judgment of the 12 tribes, there has to actually be 12 tribes. And you see Jesus say it, you see the book of Revelation say it, it's the same thing Ezekiel says. So this concept of God Regathering the 12 tribes back to their promised land doesn't change once you get to the New Testament. It just continues on with God's faithfulness to Israel. I'm in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation and let's just start reading at verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away There's no longer any sea. Okay, that's different, because our planet right now is mostly water. But the new earth, there's not going to be any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Isn't that very similar to what we just read? The idea that the temple is going to be the place where God resides. But behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things, the former things, have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be with the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke to me saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her brilliance was like a very costly stone, like a stone of crystal-clear jasper. And it had a great high wall With 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are those names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Makes sense. You're talking about New Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. It makes sense that in the New Jerusalem, is going to have 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes. Do you really think that the 12 tribes aren't going to be there or that they're lost to antiquity or that God has given up on them when New Jerusalem itself is going to have gates designated for the 12 tribes the same way that Ezekiel's temple is going to have gates for the 12 tribes? <laughs> It's impossible for me to conclude that God has given up on that whole Israel 12 tribe thing. When stuff like this exists as future promises in the coming new age, the new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth is going to include reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. And there are going to be three gates on the east, three gates to the north, three gates to the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Doesn't that sound just like what happened to Ezekiel? that there was an angelic being with a measuring rod who told him, go out and measure these things. And so New Jerusalem is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles in length and width and height, and they're all equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards, according to human measurement, which are also angelic. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone, And then he goes on and describes the 12 stones. And then verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. By the way, that's where we get the concept of the pearly gates. Pearly gates has nothing to do with going to heaven. You don't get to heaven and see St. Peter standing there with a scale in charge of the pearly gates. That does not exist. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple. This is how we know that it's distinctly different from the Jerusalem that Ezekiel sees. Because on the new heaven, new earth, I see no temple in it. For the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamb and the nation shall walk by its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean and no one who practice abominations and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life that's what we're looking forward to. So my point in bringing all that up in reading the end of the book of Revelation is to show you the connections with what Ezekiel describes, but also to just emphasize one more time, just as clearly as I possibly can, that God's promises to Israel go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, go all the way back to the unconditional promises of God to the descendants of Abraham, and... That same people group is brought forward all the way into New Jerusalem and gates that contain the names of the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of Israel are always the focus of what God is doing on planet Earth. We just get to be the lucky, lucky, grace-filled recipients of God's unmerited kindness to us that we get to be part of that. But God is keeping his promises to Israel. And that's my point. I don't know how to read it any other way. I don't know how to spiritualize it adequately. Pardon? Say that again. If these promises are not real and they are fulfilled, what do you want? Yeah. I can't read it any other way because it's consistent all the way through. All right. Now... Uh, it's 10 after 8, and I need to let you go home. I know that you guys have school tomorrow, and you've got to drive ahead of you, so I know you got to go, but I have to keep you for one more second because this is really, really important. This is something that I can't do. We can't go home until I have an opportunity to do this, so just bear with me for one second while I do this. Micah, are you happy? I'm always happy. <laughs> okay. Did I cover whatever it is? You touched on it. I touched on it. Yes. You skipped three. It was a city in one of that list. <laughs> yes, sir. I was thinking of my times in Alaska during the summer where the sun doesn't go down. And it's always up. Yeah, that's called insomnia. That's called. <laughs> it was very nice up there in the summer. <laughs> 24 hours of sunlight was a good thing. Anything else? So next week, Don't bring your noisemakers next week because we'll be in the beginning parts of Esther and introducing the book of Esther. We're not going to get all the way to Haman. But I got email this week from people. In fact, one in particular, the heading was boo to Haman. I mean, they're going to be making noise at home (laughs) as they listen along. So. Don't bring your noisemakers next week. You can. I mean, you can bring your noisemakers next week, but you'll just be sitting on them the whole time, waiting for me to say the name Haman. So next week, we will move from the Babylonian captivity into (laughs) the, what did you say? I said, I guess
1: I can bring you. Oh, the noisemaker.
0: I get it. (laughs) And a high five. So next week we'll move from the Babylonian captivity into Babylon being conquered by the Medes and the Persians because that's the time frame that is just next chronologically. So that's what we'll be looking at. Anything else? Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye! Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.